We are continuing in our look at the book of Galatians. And we come to a very, 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 very important moment. I've told you before, Paul, in all of his letters, virtually all of them, he starts with doctrine and then he starts moving into the practical side. And that's where we are today. Michael Green, years ago, uh, pointed out something very important for us to know in general. He said fire, depending on how it is used, can be either beneficial or destructive. When used correctly, it can warm a house. It can cook food. It can commit, uh, create a romantic evening with your spouse. All wonderful things with fire. But if it's misused, misused incorrectly, it can quite literally destroy woodlands. It can ruin people's dreams for their home. It can actually devastate an entire city. Then he said, Christian liberty is the same. When we use the freedom that Christ has given to us correctly, it is beneficial. If we use it incorrectly, the damage that can be done to the Christian walk, its name, its character, its reputation, its receptive, is a great potential for destruction. When we use our freedom wrongly, it can cut off any hope we have of being ministering to people, touching people's lives. It can push people away from God. I shared with you before, and I don't say this flippantly, there are some people in my life that had they been the very first Christian I had ever met, I would have run away from Jesus. I would not have wanted to have anything to do with him, thankfully. The first people I met of faith were people who were loving and caring and used their freedom well. Last week, we took a look where Paul told his readers, you are truly free in Christ. And this week, Paul begins a very practical application, and he begins with a warning. He's warning about living a life of sinful indulgence. And he called the Galatians and us to recognize that in Jesus Christ, we are to live in responsible freedom. So we're going to take a look at our text today, Galatians 5, 13 through 16. If you would stand. And as always, I ask you to please listen with both ears and your heart. And receive this, even though it might be a little bit painful for us. Paul wrote to his brothers in the Lord, You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the simple nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. May God bless the reading of his word, and you may be seated. We need to understand something. We need to really, really understand something. Uh, my parents recognized early in my life I had selective hearing. Um, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, there were times they would tell me to do something, and I'm nodding my head, and I'm saying yes, and I clearly wasn't listening because I didn't do what they asked. Um, 
I give preachers stories away, secrets away all the time. Ladies, this isn't a secret to you. We men are very capable of pretending we're listening to you. We can be nodding our heads. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a horrifying moment, isn't there, men? When you're going, when you're doing the neutral, uh-huh, uh-huh, and you hear an inflection in her voice that changes, and you know she just asked a question, and you have no idea what it is. Here, we need to listen. We need to understand what Paul was telling his readers, the Spirit of God is telling us today, we cannot use our freedom as a license to simply walk in the flesh. We cannot be caught up in lives of self-indulgence and claim that it's all right because we're Christians. We're saved. We're free from the law. We've sung free from the law, happy condition. Several times we, we, we can say, that doesn't apply to me. Well, yeah, it does. We cannot abuse our freedom. I introduced that idea to you last week. So how do we avoid using freedom as license? Well, we're going to look at two basic appeals out of this text where Paul gives an answer and gives a direction. So I need you to truly hear and understand. And the very first thing Paul lets us know, and this comes in in terms of a, a command, Follow the way of love. Follow the way of love. If you want to be certain that my life is is surrendered and yielded to Christ, it must be a life of love. Now we need to we need to get what Paul is doing here. When he talks about love, we need to understand that Paul was commanding his readers to follow a different way of servitude. He's saying you're going to be a slave. You need to choose what you're going to be a slave to. Now, the phrase sinful nature that is used in the NIV is literally the word flesh, sarks in the original language, flesh. And we need to understand it. You see, there are places in the book of Galatians when Paul uses the word flesh, what he's talking about is quite literally flesh and bone, our bodies, our physicality as human beings. But in chapters 5 and 6, In the book of Galatians, Paul is using the word flesh very differently. Chapters 5 through 6, flesh is an ethical term. And it has a very negative connotation. Flesh, in 5 and 6, refers to fallen human nature. It refers to that aspect that is within us that refuses to acknowledge God, which leads to the doing of evil instead of good, the word flesh, sums up that impelling drive within us to say no to God. It's that thing within us. And I've had people ask me to use a different illustration. But it's that thing within us. When the speed limit says 55, we set our our cruise control on 60. As we know, they're not going to stop us for five. Five miles over the speed limit. It's that thing, when you're a kid, we begin to see it very much in young kids. When people talk about the innocence of children, I don't know what children they're talking about. Uh, The reality is very early in our lives, we learn this self-assertion. We learn this thing, I want to do it my way. And it's that, that is human nature. And I'm not saying the child is a horrible, evil, wicked being that needs to be broken in spirit. I'm saying 
all of us have within us a nature that says no to God. Now, the NIV is not an exact translation, obviously. The word is literally flesh, but the NIV has captured what it means. Sinful nature. And when he says, do not indulge, use your freedom to indulge this sinful nature, or some translations say, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, that word indulge or opportunity quite literally began talking about a base of operation. We have a lot of military folks within our church, and, uh, and a lot of you will understand there, there are bases, campsites, bivouacs, where decisions are made and orders are given and the fight is done. Paul is saying, don't let your flesh have a foothold in your life in which it can ruin you. If you use your freedom as a pretext to do what you want to do, you're going to be in trouble. And the reality is here, when you hear sinful nature, we are almost conditioned. We hear those two words, and we think of all the vile, horrible, evil, wicked things that people do. We think about sexual immoralities. We think about impurities. We think about uh, uh, vulgarities. We think about all these horrible, terrible things. But in this context, now Paul's going to deal with those aspects of flesh, the, the, the really hard things that we look at. But in here, he gives an example, and he makes a statement, if you keep biting and devouring each other. And the, that little word, if, without getting real technical, the way it's constructed in the original language, when he says, if you are, keep, continue biting and, and devouring, he's saying, This is what you're doing to each other. There's division. There's anger. There's separation already within the church at Galatia. It's probably happening because of those Judaizers who are stirring people up and causing them to doubt what the gospel is. And so there are people within the congregation that are already fighting, bickering, feuding. Paul says, if you keep doing this, you will eventually destroy yourselves, your identity as a church. It'll be over with. And when they're fighting and they're struggling and they're bitter and they're ugly, that's a far cry from the biblical admonition, live in unity, care about one another, take care of each other. It's a me-first mentality. We see it in church fights, we see it in denominational fights, we see it in fights across Christendom. When people, I want it my way. Uh, I share with you the, the pastor that was accused of profanity in the pulpit. That's what Paul's talking about. That is an indulgence of flesh. I want my way no matter what. I had... I had a friend during the battle for the Bible many decades ago in the Southern Baptist Convention, one of our professors. There were some charges laid against our professor. And we knew this man and knew the charges weren't true. My friend started echoing the charges. And I said, you know that's not who he was. You know that's not what he meant. And he said, yes, but we've got to do whatever we need to do in order to get control of the convention again. It's the end justifies the means. 
My way or the highway. Now, Paul said, that's a choice you can do. And if you do that, then you find yourself a slave. The flesh that Jesus Christ came and died to save us from, to eventually purge from us when we finally stand with him face to face, that will now rule your lives. That's the slavery they're already headed back toward. But he gives them an alternative. You're supposed to be slaves to love. Now this is really interesting. In Galatians 5.6, I'll remind you, in 5.6 he said, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Hear that again. Circumcision, uncircumcision is unimportant. He says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And what he means by that, if you truly are a child of God, if the Spirit of God has come in to indwell you, if you've received the gift of salvation, your lives will begin to express love. Real faith exercises itself. James put it this way. If you're going to tell me you have faith and you can't show it in your life, it means nothing. I'm going to show you my faith by what I'm doing to help my brother or sister along. This is a natural occurrence. Uh, we expect our children to grow up and be like us. There are just some areas we wish they'd avoid. But children take after their families. We are by nature as Christians supposed to be becoming more and more like Christ. So if this is what we are supposed to do naturally, why all of a sudden is Paul commanding them, you need to serve one another in love? Why command something that should be natural? Because Paul knows who we are. And the reality is, folks, Sometimes we fight what we're supposed to do. And the reality is, even though God is guiding us, God is moving, God is directing us, and bit by bit, he's changing us more and more into the image of Christ, sometimes God chooses within his word to give a command so that we're going to pay attention. So we remember what we're supposed to be. And Paul says in this exhortation, you need to serve one another in love. And that verb, serve, in the language in which Paul wrote, gave the noun servant. And here's where it's important. When we hear the word serve, we think about doing the dishes, we think about picking up stuff, we think about being nice. It's actually, Paul is actually saying, do the work of a slave. Slave for one another in love. Give yourself completely and totally to the body of Christ and their needs. Help them whatever way you can. Make slaves to yourself. F.F. Bruce put it this way. It's almost as if Paul was saying, if you must live in slavery, here is the form of slavery in which you may safely indulge. The slavery of practical love for one another. If you live under the law, live under the law of love. That is the law of Christ. Paul said, I'm not telling you to let people forcibly subject you to their wills. I'm not telling you to be a doormat, forced. 
He's saying by the very Spirit of God within you, your hearts need to be reaching out in love. And when and where you can, actively express that love through acts of worship. Devote yourself to one another. And that's one of the most beautiful aspects of what we can be. Alan used the image of the crucifixion. The supreme act of love is the Son of God allowing himself to be nailed upon a cross, even though a legion of angels could have delivered him. And dying. The supreme act of love is Jesus on that cross, looking at the people who are mocking him, who have dealt him a death blow, and crying out to his Father, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. And the Word of God tells us that's the kind of love we should have for each other. To prove how important it is, Paul quotes Leviticus. What do you quote? It's actually Leviticus 19.18. Let me read the whole verse for you when he's dealing with this. Uh, he is saying, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then he sums it up. And he makes a statement. Love, love your neighbor as yourself summarizes the entire word of God. In Romans, the 13th chapter, Paul will talk about it again. And in verse 9, he says, the, uh, the, the only other command, whatever other commandment there be, are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Not only is it a summary of the whole law code, because if I love you, I will not steal from you, I will not commit adultery, I will not perjure you, I will not harm you. It sums up the law. And Paul says it fulfills the law. So, we will live our lives out in service to something. Bob Dylan had a little flirtation with Christianity and put out a gospel album. And in the album, he had a song, you got to serve somebody. He was right. We will either live out our lives in service to our own selfish desires. We'll believe the hype. We'll believe what we've been told. You are the single most important person in the world. You're the greatest that ever is. Yeah, I am. Now, everybody bow down. We'll be driven to use and abuse people in order to get our ways. People become objects we can demonize. People become objects we can run over. That's one choice. And if I make that choice to assert myself above everyone else, I'm giving myself over to a slavery of the flesh. Or we will live our lives spent serving one another in love. We will understand. Christ Jesus has come and saved us, and within the body of Christ, we have a bond, a family. But we will also understand that the Word says, love your neighbor as yourself. And that doesn't mean love the neighbors who are like you. It's our call to love with compassion and understanding and reaching out and helping. Now, to help us understand how important this is, I call you back to our Responsive reading today. And I want to share with you again three, the three opening verses. And I want you to listen carefully. First Corinthians 13, one through three. 
If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames and have not love, I gain nothing. People, we need to understand this. You can be the most orthodox person in miles around. You can know every answer to every Bible trivia question that has ever been asked. You can know all the facts and be as far away from God as you possibly can be without love. This is one of those reasons. I talk, I, I bring this up periodically and I pray that one day people all over Facebook will listen to me. Don't talk about the love of Jesus and then immediately launch into statements that are hateful, spiteful, ungodly. Because there are people out there I disagree with. But Christ took away my right to hate them. And I'm called to love. And if I don't, Folks, it doesn't matter if I can pronounce every Hebrew word, every Greek word, if I can parse every sentence. If I don't have love in my heart, I'm empty. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, said it as well as anybody ever has. This weird dynamic we are in as Christians. He said, a Christian is free and independent in every respect, a bond servant to none. And then, immediately, a Christian is a dutiful servant in every respect, owing a duty to everyone. So on one level, I have freedom, and I don't have to bow down to a law that says you must behave this way in order to become a Christian. I don't have to listen to the Judaizers that says you have to start fulfilling the Levitical law code. I am free at the same time in my freedom from the slavery of sin in the flesh. I am still a slave to you, to other people whom I am supposed to be showing love. So if we want to be sure our walk with God is where it needs to be, that we are actually following the Lord, we need to ask this question. Do I have love? Because love fulfills. Love summarizes. Is my life lived on the basis of love? Believe it or not, folks, you really can disagree with somebody and love them. Because love, from a biblical perspective, is not primarily an emotion. It's a decision. It's an act of the will. I will treat you with respect. That, that chorus we sang that always harkens me back to when I was about 16 years old, 14 years old, I guess the first time I heard it, when uh, back during the 70s when we were all fashion blind because we all thought... Pays, uh, Lime green paisley shirts were really great. I was bothered by the statement, we will guard each man's dignity and save each man's pride. Because in my young Christian, the word pride 
only meant hubris, sinful pride. What that song was saying is, I will treat you as a human being. I will not force myself on you in such a way as to denigrate you, as to make you into an object. I will not treat you hatefully. And even when I help you, did you know that there are ways to help people that absolutely strips them of their dignity? When you force your help upon somebody. And this is saying, we're going to love people. Uh, I have a sermon in, uh, in one of the books I have by a guy by the name of Craddock. And it's, the sermon is praying through clenched teeth. And he talked about a pastor. There's a knock on his door. He opens the door and there's a little boy standing in front of him with a small, about 10, 11 inch black and white TV that has scars on the sides of it. It's beat up really bad. And the boy looks at him and says, we just bought a brand new color TV and daddy said he thinks you'd like this. He said the pastor takes it and grins and thanks him through clenched teeth. Because you've just said something about what you think about me with the help you're giving. Folks, I am not free to turn a living human being created in the image of God into an object I can hate. And the moment I do, I need to go back and read 1 Corinthians 13. Now, nobody here lives up to that text all of the time. I love it when people use it in wedding ceremonies. And that line is not easily angered. In premarital counseling, I will often ask people to finish the sentence. You make me angry when? And you might be surprised how many times I've had two couples, couples look at me, man and woman look at me with all sincerity in their voices they can. I can't think of any time they've made me mad. And I thank God that I have a poker face, even though I don't play poker. Because about that time, my jaw is about here at my chest, and I've got a crooked eyebrow. And what I want to say, okay, come back in a while when you're actually ready to get married, because that's not reality. I'm not saying 1 Corinthians 13 needs to define you 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, because remember, we stumble, we fall, we confess our sins, and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanses of all unrighteousness. But 1 Corinthians 13 is the goal. Follow the way of Lot. And then he gives us this, this really wrapping that we need to accept God's call to a slavery defined by love. When our hearts are defined by love, we now have freedom to love even people that use and abuse us. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, of those enemies, we see them now no longer as hateful people who are trying to rob us of our rights or trying to beat us in the race for money or position of fame. We see them as we see ourselves, as the victims of sin and of Satan, as the dupes of the God of this world, as fellow creatures who are under the wrath of God and hell bound. We have an entirely new view of them. We see them to be exactly as we are ourselves, and we are both in a terrible predicament, and we can do nothing, but both of us together must run to Christ 
and avail ourselves to his wonderful grace. We begin to enjoy it together and we want to share it together. That is how it works. It is the only way whereby we can ever do unto others as we would that they should do unto us. It is when we are really loving our neighbors ourselves because we have been delivered from the thrall of self that we begin to enjoy the glorious liberty of the children of God. When I allow Christ to bring his love in my life out to others, then loving our neighbors as ourselves becomes a possibility. Follow the way of love. And then he gives the other appeal. Follow the lead of the Spirit. And he draws attention to what he's saying. But I say to you, this is Paul saying, now listen, you need to hear me. Live by the Spirit and you will not fulfill or you will not be enslaved to the lusts of the flesh. You will not indulge if you live by the Spirit. And the truth of this text that we need to hear, and it's we're going to come back to this and flesh it out even further along the way, but the reality is living by the Spirit was the key to the Galatians finding responsible freedom. I can talk about loving people all I want, but if all I'm doing is giving you another order, well, we're in trouble. Here, Paul is saying how this becomes possible. The truth is, they could not muster up this kind of love on their own. We cannot even begin to think of fulfilling 1 Corinthians 13 just by grading our teeth and saying, I'm going to love everybody. Having taken a look at the possible ruin that the Galatians are bringing, you're about to destroy yourselves as a church. Paul said this is the God-appointed remedy. And this idea of living by the Spirit governs the rest of chapter 5 into chapter 6 through verse 10. That's how important it is. Live by the Spirit. Now the word live in the NIV is very literally walk. It means to walk about. And it was used not just by people in the Bible, but people in the, the age. To walk about was one way of saying this is the way you connect your life. Walking in the Spirit means to live under the control of the Holy Spirit. And it involves a step at a time. Uh, it, it involves everyday steps. Paul is using the term walk by the Spirit figuratively. The only other place it's really used a lot, that word walk, is in the writings of John. And there it is quite literally to walk. Here it is figuratively and Paul is talking about an ethic. You need to live by the Spirit. And Paul continues that solution. If you live by the Spirit, that's the command, live by the Spirit, then he gives a promise. You will not gratify the desires of the sinful text. And again, this is one of those places when in the, the language Paul is writing, he uses a double negative. Again, that's you can't do that in English because two negatives wipe it and it becomes a positive. In Greek, it's a way of emphatically stating. If you ever get a text for somebody and it's all in capital letters, you know they're either incredibly happy or they're incredibly angry. 
This is Paul writing in all capital letters. This is Paul saying, you will not, emphatically, you will not be controlled by the desires of the flesh. You will not be run roughshod over by the flesh. And he's not saying, because you're Christian, all of a sudden the desires of the flesh go away. We still fight some of the same battles. But he says, now you will not be controlled by the flesh. So live by the Spirit. Commit yourself to following Him. Yield yourself to Him. Let Him control you. Let Him move in your life. Let Him make you become what you can be. Because the reality is, the only way we can possibly live in the freedom Christ is talking about without devolving back into slavery Our freedom can only be real through an act of submission. I am a big fan of the Lord of the Rings. The novels, the movies, I love them. And in a climactic scene when Frodo is finally at Mount Mordor, ready to throw, cast the ring into the fire, all of a sudden the ring calls out to his desires and there is a struggle. He knows he needs to destroy the ring, but he wants it. And he does not want to let go. And the climactic answer comes not through Frodo getting all of a sudden, no, I will do what is right. Gollum jumps him, the evil imp of the story, and they struggle for it. Folks, the reality is you and I, trying to get rid of the lust of the flesh on our own, we're just like Frodo. We want to hold on to them. We want to cherish them. We want to love them. We want to fill them. Uh, I had a friend years ago, in a, we, a group of us preacher boys, and we were all in seminary together. We'd gone out for lunch. And my friend, who was a, a pastor's son, his dad also happened to be a, a judge, and Wayne did, went the, the, that stereotypical bad pastor's child. And in school, he was, he was involved in drugs and he got free of that, and he was now a pastor, uh, father of his own family. And he was talking about the time, the times he used to do weed, uh, and he was saying, man, I really enjoyed smoking grass. And the oldest man at the table looked at him in horror and said, you can't say that. And he said, why? You can't say that you enjoyed it. He said, but I did, but you don't need to say that. And he's conscious of everybody around us and the waitresses and all that. He doesn't want us to look bad. And he's saying, you can't say that. And he said, if I didn't enjoy it, I wouldn't have done it. That's the flesh. It cries out to us. It's things we want to do. It's that sore toe that you press into the carpet just to make sure it's still sore and you get that rush of pain. It's all the things we know that are wrong for us and we run right to Our flesh rebels against the idea of putting our desires on hold. Like Frodo, we will, the lust of the flesh try to hinder us from following God, but we're not alone. The Holy Spirit of God is dwelling within us. And we are to walk one step at a time in obedience. Charles Ryrie, in his Systematic Theology, a survey of biblical doctrine, said the spirit-filled life is a life of dependence. And he pointed out walking, walking, the image that is used, 
by its very nature, is a succession of dependent acts. What do I mean by that? If I'm going to get from point A to point B, what do I have to do? I have to trust. I have to trust that when I raise that foot, that foot is going to keep me firmly anchored to the ground. Every time I take a step, one foot is being depended on. You need to be careful with the rug. And you take a step, and you take a step. If if you cannot trust your foot, you will be forever glued in one spot. And there have been times with battles of vertigo, I didn't trust my feet. So I had helps with me everywhere I could. When it was really bad, I went through a period of a few weeks with a walker. I had a cane that I carried with me everywhere because I wasn't sure if my feet could handle the world going in the opposite direction. When we are told to trust the Spirit, He's the only one who can free us to walk, to yield ourselves to Him, to move in Him. Folks, Everything we're going to look at from this point on in Galatians is a reminder we cannot do it on our own. But it is a reminder we don't have to. The Spirit of God is here, will empower us, will direct us, will move us, will show us the path, will guide us into becoming who we are meant to be. He will help us Learn what it means to love the enemy. He will help us learn what it means to love each other and serve each other and not worry about who gets credit for what. He will teach us what it means to shine the light of Christ's love into the world. But that's only going to happen when I start having the spirit of my Christ run freely in my life. Jesus said, while on earth, I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. I don't say anything unless the Father tells me to say it. And that is the pattern. We'll see it again in Paul's, in Galatians. He said, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Not I, but Christ. The Spirit of God will help us. So, Let us freely learn to yield to the Holy Spirit. And it begins one step at a time. Today, God help us to know what we are to be. The thunder started a little while ago and it's gotten everyone's attention. Living on the Gulf Coast, We're in the middle or the beginning of hurricane season. And there are already concerns. Folks, the reality is you and I walk every day of our lives have storms in them. They may not be lightning flashing and loud thunder, but we have storms. The only way we can navigate it is to trust the one who is our Lord. When the disciples were terrified on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. And when they, I don't think it, I don't think it was nearly as nice as the 
the, the different translations, they almost make it sound like, oh, Jesus, don't you care about us? I think they're screaming at the top of their lungs. There's a storm going. How are you sleep at the back of the boat? Do something. And then he stands up. And it's one of those moments, I know this was probably not a physical act of body language in first century Palestine. This is one of those moments he shakes his head and he just says, peace be still, and it stops. And now they're more terrified of him. The Spirit of God is within us and he can help us through the storm, quieting our hearts. And we are not alone in this. It's not me walking into a Category 5 hurricane with a dollar umbrella that I bought at the Dollar Tree. It is the very God, very God, who has saved me and come into my life. I've told you before, one of the most challenging passages of Scripture, bar none for me, is the parable of the sheep and the goats. When Christ the Son will separate people to his right, people to his left. On the right are the sheep, the, the true followers of God. On the left are the goats. And he says to the sheep at one point, Come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the sheep are going to say, what are you talking about? We never did that to you, for you. And he says, when you've done it unto the, the least of these, my brothers, you have done it to me. The whole point of this, they were not helping people because they thought it would get them into heaven. They were helping people because they were people of faith, guided by an act of a heart of love. And so they were doing what children of God should do naturally. They had no idea that by serving others, they were serving their Lord. There's a very touching, moving story that comes out of the Kentucky Hills. It tells about a young girl. Her mother died when she was at the age of eight, and there were four other children in the family. Her father was poor, and at the time frame, child care was pretty much impossible for a family in that situation. And so an eight-year-old daughter took it upon herself to take care of the family. She would get up very early in the morning to feed and clothe her little siblings to take care of her dad. She would be up way late into the night. And it's no surprise, under those conditions, in a place of real poverty, she became exhausted. And she left this world at an early age, 13 years old, when her strength was completely spent. A neighbor was with her. And she's dying. And the little girl was upset. Who wouldn't be? But listen to what she said. It isn't that I'm afraid to die, for I'm not. But I'm ashamed. 
And they said, ashamed of what? Well, it's this way. You know how it's been for us since Mama died. I've been so busy. I've never done anything for Jesus. And when I get to heaven and meet him, I shall be so so ashamed. What can I tell him? The neighbor had to, through a difficult effort, choke back her sobs. And she took the little girl's calloused, work-scarred hands. And she answered, I wouldn't tell him anything, dear. Just show him your hands. An eight-year-old girl carrying the burden and never once understood that her love for her siblings and her willingness to spend herself was serving Jesus. Can you imagine what would happen across this country if people who named the name of Christ had that kind of love? A willingness to serve and not get credit. A willingness to serve and love and spend yourself. And I, I, I know that we, we there are things we must do to take care of us, to make sure our families are provided for. I'm not saying, Jesus didn't tell all of us to sell everything you have, give it away to the poor and follow me. But I do believe that Jesus, every child of God needs to be willing to answer that call if it comes. But what he did say is, love your neighbor as yourself. If we love, with a heart that said, I'm not the most important person there is. If we love that said, I'm going to reach out and touch people in the name of Christ. Somebody once, I think it was Mark Twain once said, walk around smiling. It'll make everybody nervous and they'll wonder what you're up to. What if Christians looked at us And even when we disagree, they see love, compassion, hearts of service. Today I'm asking you to join me in asking our Father to help us live in the freedom that is ours in Christ. I'm asking you to join me that we pray we will spend that freedom in the gift of serving love. Instead of demanding my way, instead of giving in to my desires. I learn what it means to follow the Spirit of God who will enable me to love. I'm asking you today to take upon yourself the willingness to be the servant and let the love of Jesus shine through you. And there are going to be people who are amazed. There are going to be people who may have to reevaluate everything they've ever thought about us. 
And there may be people who receive that act of love that ultimately will receive the love of the Savior who gives it to us. Please. Let's not live lives of me first. First. 